0: Good morning. Good, morning. good morning. So good to see you all. Welcome to Carney E Free. My name is Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at this wonderful church. Great to be with you. If you're a newcomer here, I'd love to connect with you after the service. Or it'd be wonderful if you introduce yourself to us using that connection card that Hushai just mentioned. Whenever you're ready to introduce yourself to us, we'd love to meet you and get you connected to the church any way we possibly can. Hey, I want to extend a special welcome to those watching in the venue. Uh, Thanks for joining us today and all those watching online at carneefree.com. We are in the little minor prophet called Zephaniah. Anyone know where that is? (laughs) Uh, These are less known prophets, less known pages of the Bible, but it's been helpful for me to mark it up. I hope it has been for you as well as we understand a bit more of these kind of stuck-together pages of the Bible uh, as we uh, continue through this summer series. And again, today we'll be in Zephaniah. Just turn to your table of contents and you'll find it quickly that way. Did you know that, uh, that repentance and seeking God for who He is leads God to sing over you? Hmm. Anybody want some of that? Repentance and seeking God for who He is leads God to rejoice over you with singing. It's not so much that you give 50% of your income to charity and church. It's not so much that you have memorized the 66 books of the Bible. You can immediately turn to Zephaniah the moment you hear the word. It's not so much that you fast every Friday. All of those things may be fine in themselves. They could be good in themselves. But what God delights over, what would make God sing over you, is these two very simple words, repentance and then seeking God. God. For who he is. Zephaniah 3, verse 17 says this. This is our key verse for today's message. We'll be jumping around a fair bit in Zephaniah, but this is the key verse that we're going to come back to, both here at the beginning and then also at the end of the service. As we head into communion today, it's critical that we would hold on to this passage. We'll celebrate communion, and I pray that this would soak us. This morning. It says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves you. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. Mm, how good is that? Like, just look at those words again. He's a mighty warrior who saves. He takes great delight in you. He is with you. He rejoices over his children with singing. That's our key verse, though, this morning, and we receive that. We don't earn that. We simply receive it from God. And I believe, though, that we receive it. I believe Zephaniah is going to tell us that we receive it primarily through these two words, though, that I just noted, repentance and seeking God. It, It sounds easier though than it is and we'll look at the nation of Judah and we'll see from them just how difficult it was to really live in this. But it really is that simple repentance and receiving God as he is and then living out of his truth for us, out of his word for us is is really all he wants. Here's the context for Zephaniah. He's a little known minor prophet with a major message. Look at verse 1. Of chapter one, it says this The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. They actually learn a fair bit here about Zephaniah from this short genealogy related to his life and the context that he's living in here with Josiah, who's the king. We learn first that he is the son of Cushy. His dad was not a stern man, apparently. He was kind of Cushy. He got away with a lot. His great-grandfather was a man named Hezekiah, as we read here. Now, who is Hezekiah? Hezekiah was one of the good kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, Josiah is the other good king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And both of these have influence in Zephaniah's life. Again, his great-grandfather is this man named Hezekiah. After the civil war that led to the split between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, what you have is a whole bunch of kings from the time of that split After Solomon, you have Rehoboam and Jeroboam, these two kings over the north and the south, and between that time and their final exile under the hand of mighty Babylon, there's 20 kings in the northern kingdom, and they're all bad. Every one of them. There's 19 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, and a total of two of them are good, as described in the Bible. Hezekiah is a good king. He is a man of prayer and faithfulness. He is the great-grandfather of Zephaniah. And the other king is Josiah. Josiah we see listed here in verse 1. Josiah is now king over Judah while Zephaniah is preaching to Judah. The year is about 625 B.C., and Josiah's been king now for about 15 years. We need to talk about him for a moment to understand what's going on with Zephaniah in this context. J- Josiah's dad was just assassinated, okay? He was assassinated a number of years ago, not just assassinated, but a number of years ago. This is early in Josiah's reign, maybe 15 years into Josiah's reign. His dad was assassinated, and his dad was king. And his granddad was king, and his great-granddad was king. His dad was assassinated because he was a really bad king. Which turns Josiah into king at age eight. Josiah becomes king. He's the next in line for the throne at age eight. Could you just imagine your third grader (laughs) sitting on a throne with a crown on his head, holding a sword in his right hand? I know you don't want to imagine that, do you? you? You do not want to imagine that, but that is Josiah. At age eight, he becomes king. At age 16, Josiah starts to really seek after God. He's a teenager and he says, I want to seek after the one who alone is God. Again, his dad and his granddad, they were kings, but they didn't give him very good examples. They worshipped idols and they invited many other people to to do the same, to worship idols in and around Jerusalem and throughout the nation of Judah. Josiah is bothered by all of this, to put it very mildly, and... The thing is, Josiah, like most sons, he wants to please his ancestors. He wants to please his dad. His dad. Like he would want to follow his dad. He, He would want to follow his granddad. But you know who he wants to please more? Come on, somebody. Who he wants to please much more than his dad or his granddad is his father in heaven. And so at age 20, he removes dad's idolatry from the temple. He goes into the temple and he sees, my dad has set up some mess in here. And he removes the idolatry from the temple and he removes the temple prostitution that was going on there as well. And he loses some leadership chips with the people, but he gains the applause of God. The most spiritually mature amongst them in Judah was a 20-year-old. Don't let anyone look down at you because you are young. And in that context, Zephaniah, he is preaching a word of the Lord about the coming day of the Lord. Now, as you remember in the Minor Prophets, what does the day of the Lord refer to? Anyone? heard someone from the venue say judgment. Okay, thank you, venue. Yeah. That's right. The day of the Lord refers to coming judgment. And in this case, the day of the Lord, that's coming, the coming judgment is going to be on Judah. And the hand of judgment is going to be meted out through the mighty Babylonians. Pick up the story there, verse 2. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Again, Zephaniah preaching to the people He is inspired by a message from the Lord uh, to write down and to preach this word. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I believe this is destroying mankind. uh, Speaking of Judah here, And how Babylon is going to come in and not just Judah, they also will destroy the Amorites and the Amalekites and many other nations that are spoken to here in Zephaniah as well. Other nations as Babylon comes in and will be a hand of justice over all of them. It's not over the entirety of the earth, I don't believe in this context. It's the entirety of their known world. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place the very names of the idolatrous priests those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also who swear by Moloch those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him be silent be silent before the sovereign Lord for the day of the Lord is near then verse 12 it says At that time, on the day of the Lord, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Now just help me out here for a moment. What are the two issues that the prophets harp on and have been harping on throughout this series again and again? What are they? I heard someone say idolatry. What's the other one? Injustice, yeah. Idolatry and injustice. Through the prophets again and again, starting at Isaiah and going all the way to Malachi and through these minor prophets we've been looking at, starting with Hosea and Amos and and going all the way to Malachi, you hear these these two issues in the land of Israel and the land of Judah idolatry and injustice. Now, Zephaniah decides to point out a third. He also points out apathy. Okay? There's two specifically that he really talks about here today idolatry and apathy. Let's remind ourselves what idolatry is it's an attachment or an allegiance. To any person or place or thing over God. It's putting something else on the throne over God. You may not even say that it's over God, but in your heart or on your calendar or through your wallet, it becomes evident that that thing is over God. Idolatry is this big, nasty word, and none of us would say that we worship any idols. Of course not. But synonyms to idolatry for our 2022 parlance would include words like emotional attachments, allegiances, heart level commitments, entanglements, anything less than God which clutches our hearts and threatens to take the place of God over our hearts over our minds can easily become like a god look at verse 4 and we'll see again how it's happening in judah it says i will stretch out my hand against judah against jerusalem i will destroy every remnant of baal and the very names of the idolatrous priests you might circle that word Baal. maybe you've seen it many times in your old testament you wonder who that is Well, Baal is the god of the Canaanites. He's the lead god in the Canaanite deity structure, and the name Baal means master or lord. And the priests of of Canaan would create these statues of gold or wood or stone, and they would bow down to those statues. If you've been to any polytheistic nation... um, that's maybe the wrong choice of words. Any, uh, if, you, if you've known someone who practices polytheistic religion, rather, we'll say it that way, you see that sometimes they bow down to statues of their own making. Sometimes statues of gold or wood or stone or maybe a portrait or maybe even throwing a crucifix in there. That's, that's not what all of them are doing, but sometimes these would be representatives of someone else that they are worshiping, and God forbids idolatry, okay? Uh, Likewise, some religions will worship their ancestors, and so you have those shrines to ancestors, and maybe a number of different shrines in the house, and And maybe a little puja, a place of worship for worship of other gods that one has made. That's the kind of thing that's happening in Israel this time as they're bowing down to the gods of Baal in addition to bowing down to Yahweh from time to time. You look at verse 5, they also are swearing by Molech. He says, I will also punish those who swear, verse 5, circle Molech. Who's Molech? Moloch is the god of the Amorites. You have the god of the Canaanites is Baal. The god of the Amorites is Molech. And what Israel was regularly doing though this time, Judah as well, would be intermarrying well, with these other uh, nations. And the reason that God forbade them to intermarry with other nations is not because there's anything wrong with the other nations per se. It's that God did not want them to take on their worship, which is precisely what they did. They intermarried, well, with these other nations, and they took on their worship. And all of a sudden, the people of Judah are not just worshiping Baal, not just worshiping Yahweh, but they're also worshiping these statues to, to the God of Molech. And the statues and the people of Molech, they also practice things called temple prostitution as an act of worship. And child, I'm not kidding you, the Amorites practice child sacrifice as a way of worshiping their gods and the people of God who are entrusted with the ten commandments and the prohibition against worshiping any false gods the prohibition against any idolatry the commandment to care for all life we participating in this Now, that kind of idolatry obviously is appalling, right? And we would never do something like that. Our attachments are way more sophisticated than that. (laughs) But whether it be our 401K or... I'm going to noodle a little bit here. Our endless youth sports culture or a, a politician of choice or our phones, we can certainly get attached to the goods of this world, can we not? And the goods of this world, as good as they are, and those things that I just listed can be good, and I have many of those, okay, in my life, understand. We can get attached to the goods of this world, and they can displace the God who created this world. The goods of this world, if we are not careful, can displace the God who created this world. I noted a few weeks that I can be overly attached to achieving my plans. So much so that I don't humble myself at times before God and say, God, what would you have to say about my plans? Where would you humble me relative to my plans? Where would you redirect me relative to my plans? And so, again, this puppy that my wife got me is really helping me in that fight showing me again and again who's boss. I'm not boss. But <laughs> like Israel's idolatry and our allegiances, they illustrate this simple fact, the human heart longs to worship something. And we're either going to worship the one who alone is God or we will find some other replacement for the one who alone is God. Now the second issue that Zephaniah is preaching about here Yes, idolatry, but also the second issue that he spent some time on is apathy. And apathy is kind of like a, eh, meh, whatever attitude. Particularly about spiritual things. Okay, like we live in central Nebraska where very few people are, eh, about their work. People work hard here. It's one of the things I love most about this community. People work hard. But it's interesting, sometimes all people can get tempted to spiritual apathy about the things of God. Can we not? In verse 12, the NIV uses the word complacent. The people of Judah have gotten complacent about the things of God. I love the New American Standard Bible, which puts it this way, verse 12, they were stagnant in spirit. Ooh, you ever been there? Stagnant in your spirit. Or listen to this one from the message paraphrase. This is so good, you'll see it up on the screen. It says, I will find and punish those who are sitting it out. Fat and lazy, amusing themselves and taking it easy, who think God doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything good or bad. He isn't involved, so neither are we. That's a word picture, isn't it? They're amusing themselves, getting fat and lazy, sitting it out. Sitting out the spiritual things that God would have us be a part of. So the people of Judah, the issue here is they're getting so comfortable that they love their comfort more than they love God. Like, I know he's given us these Ten Commandments, but like, God, they're really hard work. Like, it's just easier to kind of blend in with the crowd and practice idolatry like the rest of them. I'd rather just blend in with the crowd. That's easier, God. Can I just do that instead? Or, God, I I know you've given us these commands of pursuing righteousness and pursuing justice and Micah 6.8 to uh, act justly and to love mercy and to always walk humbly with your God, but, eh, meh. That's hard work. I'm not sure if I want to pursue mercy with those who are really hurting. I don't know if I can handle another hurting person in my life. I'm not sure if I want to interrupt this act of injustice that I see. Judah at this time is lazy and opulent and indifferent. They are so consumed with things in this world that they've lost sight of the one who made the world here's a description of apathy comes from Uchi Anazor who's a theologian at Biola University one of the top top, uh, Christian universities in the United States Uh, he wrote a wonderful book called Overcoming Apathy and he says this apathy is a psychological and spiritual sickness in which we experience a prolonged dampening of motivation, effort, and emotion, as well as resistance to the things that would bring flourishing to ourselves and others. Like, not just dampening of motivation, but resistance to the things that would bring flourishing to ourselves and others. It's a sin that expresses itself as restlessness, aimlessness, laziness, and joylessness toward the very things of God. I don't know about you, but I, I tend to think that apathy, spiritual apathy particularly, is kind of a big deal in our culture right now. Does anyone else? Yeah, no. Like, we spent a lot of time in the spring talking about unhurry already, but like to unhurry requires a valiant effort, doesn't it? And it's very, very interesting in my experience how hurry and apathy actually go together. Like, you can hurry and scurry about about all different kinds of insignificant and unimportant things such that you fool yourself to thinking that you're doing things that are important. And you get so excited by all of these things that you lose focus on what is really important. And if you're not careful, you can even lose desire for what is important. Come on, somebody. Okay? Like, it goes from hurry to apathy in a snap. It, like We can just be bored to death if we are not careful. We get amused to death by our devices. We get bored to death by our TVs. We get spoiled to death by our comforts that we've lived in the United States for the past 40 years or so. And you put it together, we are so comfortable that we get disinterested in the things of God such as Bible study or prayer or evangelism or reaching out to one's neighbors, or mercy, or pursuing justice, or loving one who hurts you, or doing the hard work of reconciliation to one who is against you. And friends, these are the very main things of God. They are, like they're not secondary things. They're the very main things of God, and we get eh, whatever. Like, we should evaluate that. Maybe you won't get as excited as me. <laughs> but we should evaluate that. There's an article in The Atlantic some time ago by a man named Jonathan Rausch. The article is titled, Let It Be. And he writes, The greatest development in modern religion is not religion at all. It's an attitude best described as apathyism." The writer talked about how someone asked him about his religion, and his initial impulse was to tell him that I am an atheist. But then he stopped himself and he said, no, I'm an apatheist. He said, I used to call myself an atheist, and I still don't believe in God, but the larger truth is that it's been years since I really cared one way or the other. In that moment, something struck him. He said, I am not an atheist, I am an apatheist. You see, for the first time perhaps in world history, we in the West over the past 40 or 50 years ago have gotten so comfortable that we've had the luxury to not think about things like God, meaning, morality, destiny, origins. These kinds of kind of big ideas. We, we, we can just get on fine without even thinking about those at all. And friends, this is not merely an atheist or agnostic phenomenon. You ever think about which activities make you spiritually complacent? Do you ever think about possibly reducing them? Or even eliminating them? Like, what if you were to, say, fast from TV for a month? You could live without it, trust me, you could. Or like social media. Or politics. Um, Or, you know, looking at the stocks. What if we were to actually say, you know, maybe I'm going to reduce my sports commitments. You know what would happen? Some of the FOMO, some of the fear of missing out, would start to melt away. And there would be newfound space in our hearts and our minds for the mission that God has for us right here in this place. And maybe newfound space to join the mission in one of those 130 or so ways. Maybe newfound space to reach out to someone in our neighborhood that we know is lonely and hurting. Reach out to a widow that we know is lonely. Care for a single parent that we happen to know. Maybe we'd find ourselves more and more in a desire for the basic things of God that I just mentioned. Maybe we would even, like, say, I, I really want to study this again. And I, I even want to, like, fall down before God for, say, 15 or, or 20 minutes a day like this again. And, and, and resume this position where I recognize oh the holiness of God oh the goodness and the grace and the power and the mercy and the might of God and my eyes and my heart and my mind would be oriented toward him a little bit more because I've reduced so much other stuff this is exactly what Josiah did Let's go back to the story for just a moment. At age twenty-six, he discovers the scrolls of Moses hidden in the temple. <laughs> like they didn't even know where they were. The first five books of the law, just hidden in the temple, and he he dusts them off. And uh, and and like he cleans shop, he removes again all the idolatry, and as he opens up the scrolls. Uh, he sees the standards of God, like he knew they were missing the mark, but now he really sees the standard of God, and he falls to his knees. Here's the response, 2 Kings twenty-two eleven. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. And friends, whenever you read this in the Bible, someone tearing their robes or putting on sackcloth and ashes, it signals one of two things, either grief over the loss of a loved one or Repentance. In this case, it was repentance. saw what was written in the book of the law, and he said, we are far from that. He tears his robes, and then it goes on from there, verse 12, 2 Kings 22. He gave these orders to the priests and to his attendants. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and all of Judah. What is written in this book and has been found, great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They've not acted in accordance with what is written here, written there, concerning us. And so Josiah, he goes against the grain, and what he does is three things. He repents, he removes idolatry, and then he runs to God. He repents of sin, he cleans out the idolatry, and he seeks God. And again, seeking God and repenting leads God to sing over us, to rejoice over us. Here's the big idea from Josiah's life, and I think from Zephaniah's message as a whole, as these two are congruent with each other, these two go together historically. The big idea for us God, goes like this: repent of idolatry and apathy. Run to God and receive his love. Say that with me. Would you join me? Repent of idolatry and apathy run to God and receive his love. Josiah did that. He repented of idolatry and apathy. Then he ran to God, he received God's love. Much of Judah remained in her idolatry and apathy, and so for Zephaniah, a lot of Zephaniah, what you see is talk again and again about the coming day of the Lord. In fact, 19 times In three chapters, it says the day of the Lord is coming. And even there, in the midst of this prophecy about God's coming justice, is this invitation for the people of Judah to shelter themselves in God as he comes through Babylon and brings about justice over Judah. Look at chapter two, verses one through three. It says, gather together, Gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect. I've circled and highlighted in my Bible the word before. Before the decree takes effect. Gather together before the decree takes effect. And that day passes like windblown chaff before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, seek him, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Again, you just gotta take note of what's said here. Before the decree takes effect, humble yourself. Okay that's repentance right We humble ourselves but before God it's about repentance The most humble thing that someone can do is repent to God And oftentimes the most humble thing we can do is repent to each other when we've wronged someone else The most prideful thing we can do is hold on to those wrongs and never repent But humility is so frequently repentance You humble yourself and you seek the Lord you seek righteousness you seek humility You do all of this, and all of this is fighting apathy. And then Zephaniah says, Perhaps you fight apathy that way. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. And indeed we will. We seek God's face. We humble ourselves before him. We repent of ways that we've missed the mark. And he will shelter us. And friends, this is like both the challenge and the invitation of Zephaniah. Before the coming day of the Lord, this is speaking to the day of the Lord that comes upon Judah, but we know there is a day of the Lord coming upon the world, right? Before the coming day of the Lord, when Christ returns to make all things right, shelter yourself. Before you die Shelter yourself Before you go to high school My friends Shelter yourself in the Lord May your lives be Hidden with God in Christ Before you go to college Shelter yourself in the Lord Before you choose a mate Please Before you choose a mate Shelter yourself In the Lord I dare say, before you go to bed tonight, before you go to bed tonight, shelter yourself in the Lord. And you'll be sheltered from the pure justice of God by his mercy, which triumphs over justice, as James says. His mercy triumphs over justice. And then you can receive these most glorious words from Zephaniah, which were offered to the people of God back then, but are still offered to the people of God today. Look at it again from Zephaniah. Here's this promise. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. But he will rejoice over you with singing.